Playback. Welcome back to Q Playback, the podcast that looks into DIY recording uh, from the 90s through to today. Um, today we're going to jump in around the year 1992, maybe 1993, uh, and I'll just introduce our guest for today. Longtime friend and potentially mock rival as teens, Carolyn Oates. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here. Uh, now, we met in high school. We did. Um, and the first recording that I can find of us working together, I think, is 1992. Yeah. That's my guess. That's that's my recollection as well, yeah. Yep. Uh, so what we always do at the beginning of this podcast is look at what was in the charts uh, the year <laughs> okay. that we were uh, jumping in together. So yep. um, any guesses on the top albums in Australia? For 1992. Oh, I lived such a sheltered childhood, I, I don't know if I could tell you. Um, would, it, would it have been a Crowded House album by any chance? That's a good guess, yeah. but no. Oh, okay. Was it uh, Australian Act? Yes. Hmm. I'll say All Australian Cast. Uh, all Australian Cast? Mm. Sounds like it's going to be a musical then. Um, what musicals there were out then. Musicals weren't really my thing. Even mm. though I participated in them in high school, it was purely from a chance to actually do something musical. Yeah. <laughs> so number one on the Australian album charts in 1992 was Jesus Christ Superstar, oh. <laughs> original cast, re cast recording. Yeah. Um, number two was Baby Animals' self-titled album, oh, yeah. Baby Animals. Yeah. Uh, number three was Jimmy Barnes' Soul Deep. Nice. Um, now, before I go on with the rest of the um, the list, it's something we've commented on in other podcasts that um, the Australian industry these days is very much dominated by international acts and that's sort of the way that the media companies work. Yeah. Um, so it's quite interesting to see that in 1992 we were still getting a lot of homegrown artists um, at the top of our charts. Mm. Um, maybe that's sort of a little bit of an indicator of how much things have changed uh, over the last 30-odd years. Yeah. Uh, at number nine, uh, all-time classic uh, Some Gave All by Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> uh, Fifteen, Tribal Voice by Yothi Yindi. So yeah. um, another excellent act. Yeah. And uh, just squeezing in there at number 17 was Nevermind by Nirvana. So Only 17? Uh, just, just the beginning of um, grunge, grunge yeah. uh, moving into Australia. Um, so our first meeting, I, I struggle to think. It, were you um, at uh, our high school from year seven? I or was, even earlier? I, yeah, I was. I yep. was there because it was a school that went all the way from prep. Yep. And I, I started there in grade one. Oh, amazing. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I sort of came in at, uh, at year seven. Yeah. Uh, took me a little while to adjust because uh, this was a, um, a nice Christian school and I'd come from a public primary school where I'd been bullied a lot. Yep. So it took me about a month to realise that people were actually being nice and not just setting me up so that they could tease me later. Um, School of hard knocks. <laughs> that's right. Um, 
And so you had, or at that point, you'd already been learning music for a long time. Yeah, I started piano um, grade two. Mm. So, yeah. um, and like we've known each other a long time. And one of the things that I've admired about you is that you have an absolute discipline to learning things. And I would say that I'm the complete opposite <laughs> to that. Um, so even at that point, what, what were the things that really drew you to music? Yeah, well, um, at that stage, I think it was really the challenge. So we were just talking about this just before we, uh, like over coffee, before mm. we started this discussion that I've worked out at long last. My motivator for being a musician is about the challenge, either it's a technical challenge or a um, skill challenge. I just love a challenge. Mm. <laughs> so... In that sense, um, I was highly motivated to work on something, um, like say, you know, work on a scale, work on a piece of music, because I just, I, if I'd set myself, I want to learn this, then the challenge was, I'm going to achieve it mm. somehow, and pretty much everything I did, you know, would be on the basis of the skills I learnt starting on piano, just knowing that when you start playing something it's shit. Like you just, you can't play something perfectly the first time you play it. So, yeah. um, the, the nature of, um, achieving success for me in music was understanding that, um, I needed to plod and that there was more failure involved and there was success as far mm. as actually executing something for a very long time. Like it was 95% of failures of mistakes or incorrect technique or forgetting where I was in the song or getting distracted mm. yep. or any any of that stuff and then finally you know finding a way to actually achieve achieve learning the piece performing the piece playing the piece mm. so yeah that was kind of um, my approach from the beginning I don't know why I understood that as a seven-year-old yeah <laughs> but somehow I did um, so yeah, there's nothing worse than vaguing out on stage and then realizing you're playing. That that's probably the only time that I make mistakes uh, yeah. when I, I drift a little bit. Oh yeah, and then you realize you're actually on stage and what the hell are you doing? And you have yeah. to, am I on the right chord? Um, I also started off on piano, um, but I didn't have the same uh, dedication or enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. I think some of that might have been that um, my piano teacher would hit my fingers with a ruler if I got the <laughs> notes wrong. Okay. Um, so I wasn't quite as inspired. Yeah, um, I didn't have a teacher like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I think yeah, the differences between you and I. Um, I don't know if it's led into being on the producer side of things. That um, I think I, firstly I was probably more taken by capturing sound or getting the right sound, even mm. when um, guitar effects. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like I'm often trying to create that moment, um, even when I'm doing session work. And once that's gone, all of that information just sort of disappears, if that right. makes sense. I'm, I'm yeah. not... Um, so I often think I should, I should really become technically better at um, everything, mm. um, you know, guitar, piano, drums... Um, but I also know that I'm good at sort of capturing that moment. Um, and it's probably a, probably a, a failing, but 
um, you know, I, I guess that's what I've always been inspired about your playing. Um, I don't think I've seen you do a bad show. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, although maybe some of those musicals in high school. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> My singing uh, ability back then I think was not so great, but, you know, that was what high school was all about, was starting that journey and... Yeah, singing was the least of my probably musical skills at that point, and it wasn't until I actually went, oh, I think I need some singing lessons, mm. that that helped improve things there. I did eventually get singing lessons, but I think because uh, I grew up listening to The Cure, I wasn't as <laughs> worried about how my voice was coming across. <laughs> um, That's probably the one, one good thing about musicals, is it did help me realise, yeah, I probably do need to get some singing lessons. <laughs> Uh, if only they'd done like a goth musical. Oh, or a grunge musical. Yeah. Yeah, that could have been good. I'm sure there's someone cooking something up right now to do a, a bit of a nostalgic revival. Um, so our first recording experiences, um, it's, it's hard to remember. I'm pretty sure that it's 1992. Yep. And absolutely I... absolutely was. I can, I can guarantee yep. that. I had a four-track recorder. Yes. Um, Tascam. Yep, was it Tascam Porter yeah, yeah. 4, maybe? Yeah. It, instead of having actual sort of like um, protruding knobs, it just had sort of more dial That's things. right, yeah. Yep. Um, and I can't have had that too long. I think maybe the beginning of year 12. Yep. Um, I, I'd had a um, an after-school job um, as a nursing assistant since the end of year 10. Mm. Um, and so I think I'd splashed out on this four-track recorder. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe we'd set up my parents' uh, lounge room. No, I'm no? pretty sure it was, yeah, your actual room, your wow. bedroom out the back. So okay. you, you had, like, an extension yep. out the back with the sunroom. And then, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yep. So wow. it was just all in there. Amazing. Yep. Uh, and that, <laughs> once again, I've mentioned this in the other podcasts that um, – my brain seems to work with memory around emotional events rather than details, so I'm really just bringing people in to keep me accountable. Um, so, yeah, if it was my bedroom, it would have been the blue carpet, the blue walls, yeah. and um, a four-track recorder. Yeah. Um, so anyone got any questions about the Tascam, feel free to ask. I can't remember that much. I'll try and dig up the model that I actually used. Um... So uh, from listening to the recordings that I will dump in the podcast, yeah. I would say that the guitar was DI'd. Yes, yep. absolutely. Uh, so for people that don't know lingo, that means that it was a direct plug from the acoustic guitar into the Tascam uh, studio recorder rather than a microphone or two on the guitar. Um, and we had another friend, uh, Stephen, doing the vo yep. Stephen Graydon doing yep. vocals. Um, now that must have been a pretty cheap mic, I reckon, from memory. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think it was any kind of condenser or anything. No, it yeah. would have been some kind of handheld dynamic. Yeah. Um, I'm really stretching my brain. Maybe it had a switch. Yeah, it could have, an on-off switch. <laughs> an yeah. on-off switch. Um, it might have even had, like, you know, the permanent lead out the back of the microphone. Yeah. I, I would, um, yeah, I'd put money on that. Um, yeah, so we'll dump that in into the podcast. Um, the, the signs of age on the tape are evident. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, hearing that again, did it bring back any other sort of memory of the time or um, how, would that have been the first time you'd recorded or would it have been it through school? Uh, yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it was the first time because mm. I did, um, you know, one or two of the musicals we did at school, um, we did record yep. in a studio that actually eventually became Alan, Alan Newendorf's studio, um, was called A&J Studio at the mm -hmm. time, uh, and it was run by Alan Newendorf and um, Jay McNeil, who, yep. yeah, was a drummer, um, so... Yeah, I had some experience recording, and that was um, singing. Okay. Um, but then, yeah, I think that was kind of probably my second or third experience doing mm. any kind of recording. And it really raised the professional level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, A and J Studios, which um, later became Baker Street Studios, yeah. was where I put together my album Seventy Five. So it was probably like the second album I did on a big scale. Mm. Um, so, Ellen, that was a great experience. Um, yep. I, I probably drove you crazy because you'd never heard so many different layers. Um, so I apologize. But he's got such a patient, calm person. That's true, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so what did you think of your musicianship back then? Because listening back, I was like, I don't think I could even play this guitar part now. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it was nice to hear it because it's like, okay, yeah. Um, my, you know, my memory of by the time I'd reached year 12 was I was a pretty confident, um, particularly strumming, strumming um, and interesting chords, like the beginning of learning interesting chords throughout, um, I think, yeah, that, those later high school years, I'd set myself some goals of trying to learn to play some songs off, um, at that time, probably one of the most influential albums that I listened to, which was Charlie Peacock, West Coast Diaries, Volume 2, okay. which was, um, uh, he released these three volumes of songs, and the second volume was just him on vocals, uh, a guitarist called Jimmy A on acoustic guitar, and then um, another guy um, just doing backing vocals. Uh, I forgot what his name right this second. Um, but yeah, like I would listen to that album and go, man, I wish I could play guitar like that. Mm. And then I went, you know what, I'm just going to try and learn how to do it. Yeah. And so I, I picked a song um, and then went, I have no idea how I'm going to work this stuff out. And then just started by trying to maybe at least find the lowest note of, of each chord going, maybe that'll be the start of the chord or yeah. things like that. And I think at one point I managed, I discovered that there was some video out there of um, that particular, or not that particular recording, but another live performance of Charlie Pink. Right. And I bought the video so I could watch some of what Jimmy A was doing. And so these days you could just jump onto YouTube and find yeah. it, like 500 different versions of the same song, yes. probably with some um, camera close-ups and yeah. a few people deconstructing it um, um, and playing it half speed so that you can pick it up. But back then, you really had to search around for the things that you loved. Yeah. Um, even, even just getting your favourite album or having to order it in at Brashes. Yeah. Well, and, I, you know, it was on tape and I would just be constantly, you know, rewinding play, rewind play, rewind play, you know, mm. over sections to try and work out what's the chord there and what's the chord there. So, yeah, looking back at what I actually, how many of those songs I learnt, 
probably from year 10 onwards, 10, 11, 12, um, I obsessed about mm. trying to learn almost every um, song off that album. And now I go, I look back at that and go, yeah, that was actually, you know, that's pretty hard work. Yeah, and the <laughs> fact that it was self-driven is pretty impressive too. Yeah. Um, and at that same time, uh, I would have been saying, what's a chord? <laughs> and uh, all of that um, enthusiasm would have been put into trying to work out how different artists made the sounds. Um, yeah, whereas I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about sounds at that point, yeah. Yeah, uh, so double flanges on Cure albums and putting <laughs> your distortion at the end of your effects chain uh, so that everything got a little bit more industrial. Um, so, as far as being an artist yourself, um, how do you feel that your writing and um, some of your work would say is also self-produced or yeah. produced with other people? How do you think those techniques have changed? Because you're, you're sort of um, saying that you had that kind of discipline from an early age to be very analytical. Mm. Um, do, you, do you think it has changed or...? How would you say yeah, it's developed? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really succinct, um, good, observational way to explain it. And I'd say that actually, yeah, my particularly my songwriting has evolved in that way too. Like early on, you know, teenage songs were like, "I've written it. It is now a sacred cow. You must not, <laughs> you must not touch it. You cannot change it. It was written. You know, I poured my heart out into this song, and it's so special." Yeah. Um, whereas. The analytical part of my brain has definitely over the over the last few decades kicked in a bit more. So I might write a song or start working on a song and go, you know, actually it needs this, it needs that, or I might get the crux of a song and I even say that now. I don't say I write a song and then I change it. I'd go, I've got the crux of the song or mm. what I think's probably right, but then, you know, take some time away from it and come back and go, mm, nah, that bit sucks or this bit sucks or the overarching concept of the song um, doesn't work or, you know, I'll try writing something and then going, oh, there's too many words or I'm trying to convey too big a, too big a topic and it's not going to work um, because I'm trying to squeeze in too much information into a song so mm. I should just dump that idea, um, things like that. So, yeah, I have become <laughs> quite, quite analytical as far as, um, not seeing any of my work as completed or finished after, say, the first attempt at writing it or yeah. even the second attempt at writing it. Um, and I, I think, yeah, striving to improve it um, is, a, is an important thing. Mm. Um, I got to do, um, like, play at a performance where um, I was playing guitar in a band for a tribute to Deborah Conway with yep. um, Deborah and really her husband in the audience watching us play. And she did. No actually, pressure. No, no pressure. <laughs> all of, I was playing all of Willie Zeiger's parts, which are totally <laughs> awesome parts, can I just say. So it was a really awesome gig to, to get to play. And um, Deborah did get up, you know, to do a couple of songs at the end. Brilliant. She talked about one of the songs um, that we performed, Take Pity on the Beast. And, she said it went through about 30 reincarnations just wow. trying to get the... And I went, okay, I, I don't know if I've ever gone, <laughs> gone that extreme. <laughs> um, but, yeah, she talked about how, yeah, she reworked that song about 30 yeah. times. And it's like, wow. 
I think there's, um, for me, there's an aspect of um, until a song is finished, yeah. um, commas, it can still be perfect. Mm. And so you've, you've still got this tension. And um, so for like for some of my songs, I will have lyrics that are unfinished and I'll just get into record and I'll see what my brain produces because I'm in that, that zone, yeah. in that pressure. Um, and, and often that just makes me crystallise yeah. the idea um, and get past that that frustration. Yep. Um, yeah, I think having a time, uh, like... You're saying you know, you, you're actually under a time pressure too. I think that works really well too. I've done a couple of projects, community mm. projects, where yeah, you've gone in to listen um, about, you know, it, it's a particular theme for the community project and so we spend time uh, listening to people's stories and then you've got to try and somehow convert that into a song mm. and you're under a time pressure. Yeah, I've found that that also is a significant one. Um, what would you say was um, your most desperate moment of innovation? <laughs> it could be a technical stuff up or uh, <sighs> you've been trying to find some lyrics and you've gone to ancient Greek philosophers. Or <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that. I mean, and off the top of my head, I, the first thought I've had is what did I do at a live gig to try and keep it, keep it going? Um, and the first... The first disaster mitigation um, uh, story that comes to mind was I was doing a Alpha Loopy gig, and Alpha Loopy is um, my instrumental project, um, which is uh, sort of a dance-based project mm-hmm. where um, I create loops live and build on that, and it's all keyboard-based. And so, so what gear were you using for that project? Um, so that's uh, that's a this is a more modern project, so we're, we're yep. expanding out of the 90s here. But, um, yeah, I've got a MacBook Air. Uh, I have a Novation MIDI controller keyboard mm-hmm. and a no- Novation um, MIDI controller launch pad. Yep. So I use the launch pad to start a recording, then play the record, like, you know, then play the, um, the keyboard mm. to create the melody line or the bass line or whatever it is, and then... Um, punch out of that recording and then it turns into a leap, a loop. Yep. So it's technically super challenging to play. Um, and fortunately, I didn't actually have an issue with my gear. It was the actual PA at the venue. Uh, so okay. word to the wise, stick to the 90s technology people. <laughs> so I was playing in a venue where they had um, <clears throat> the good old uh, wireless Bluetooth controlled... Um, mix mixer through an iPad. Yep. And guess what happened? <laughs> the Wi-Fi didn't work, <laughs> so no. there was no sound coming out of the PA. Excellent. But me being me and being gig experienced that I am, I always come to gigs now with redundancies. So I had a bunch of extra physical leads. I had a little mixing desk, and I had brought along, I think, my own fallback wedge, a powered wedge. Yep. So I just set everything up to come out of my own little wow. PA speaker. Wow. That's stretching. For um, everyone who <laughs> played <laughs> that night. Um, so, yeah. Um, speaking of gear, though, I, I'm just remembering back because I, I think you were instrumental, mm. excuse the pun, yeah. in providing me with loans of equipment. Um, so when I was 
uh, writing probably a couple of years later than uh, the recording that's on this podcast. Mm. It's definitely using one of your keyboards, I think. Yeah, could be a possibility, uh, the Yamaha SY22. That, that sounds right. I'll, we'll have to look up a picture. I'll dump that in the Patreon. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point I was actually using a drum machine as a sequencer. Yeah. Sending the sequence out to the keyboard <laughs> that I'd programmed into the drum machine, which for anyone listening is pretty much the opposite way that you would do things. Um, but, um, yeah, and then that album... Um, from memory, you took me into, uh, well, what was the studio called at that point? To re- we were recording vocals for uh, my Spindrift album, which was a very oh, sort yeah. of electronic-influenced album. Um, was it Rangemaster T- yeah, or TLC? TLC yeah, yeah. Yep. in the 90s. Yeah, yep. it was TLC. It became Rangemaster in the early 2000s. So that would have been my first time doing proper vocals, I think. Yeah. Um, do you remember much about that recording process? Uh, that particular um, recording, no. But, I mean, I, I know TLC mm. like the back of my hand yep. um, because, yeah, after I finished school and was studying at uni, I started harassing someone that worked there <laughs> on a regular basis about, can I just come in and, and sit there and volunteer? Yeah. Like, just observe, do whatever. So... The, the gear there, if we want to talk gear, yeah? Yeah, go for it, whatever you can remember. Um, they had, uh, you know, a Tascam 16-track reel-to-reel um, run with some MIDI Simpty. They had a Commodore, I think it was the Commodore 64 with a MIDI controller. Wow. They had a um, uh, Midas, a Midas desk with some MIDI patching Okay. Um, built into it, which they could control using the Commodore 64 yep. and stuff like that, or, you know, pre-patching. So j- just for our listeners, MIDI, uh, music in digital information, something yeah, like that? Yeah, it's like a universal music language. Well, not music language, it's a zeros and ones yeah, digital language. Digital representation of music information. Yeah. Um, and that's still used to this day, Um some people still use MIDI cables. A lot of it's USB these days. Yeah. Um, just for anyone that's interested, I'll maybe put a primer in um, the comments too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they had the 16-track reel-to-reel, just a one-inch. And then um, by that stage, they had invested in some digital um, tape machines. So they had the Tascam DA88s. Yep. They had two of those, didn't they? They had two originally, yeah. and then they got three. So that was like, whoa, that's like a whole 24 tracks plus they could sync it up to the tape machine. So then you could have uh, 40 tracks because you had the six. Well, actually, sorry, technically one of the tracks on the tape machine was taken with the Simpty code, which is a way that um, they send the message for various MIDI things. And and for the the tape machine, the reel-to-reel machine, to chase what the DA88s were doing, one of the tracks on the 16-track had the Simpty code so that it could chase when the DA88s started. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten that. 
when we talk about digital recording today, and as I've said before, like everyone with an iPad or an iPhone's got a multi-track recorder now yeah. uh, with GarageBand. But back then, thinking about all these different physical pieces of equipment that had to be synced up together to make everything work yeah. um, now is just mind-blowing. Yeah, um, and the amount of times you have to try and solve a problem just around the yeah. syncing was... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do remember that. Yeah. Um, um, if I'm, for me, I just remember uh, thinking the scale, even uh, though it wasn't a huge studio, yeah. um, by the standards of what I was doing, it was just um, yeah, like this this new universe. Um, yeah, it was quite a big control room yeah. and a small booth, but like the booth was probably, yeah, maybe even this size, maybe a bit bigger than this room that we're in now which is what like two maybe three meters by three meters something like that um yeah no i remember thinking that i'm glad that i was glad that you knew what you were doing (laughs) um because i'd been behind a four track so a four track mixer and maybe you know doing dump downs uh so that you have more tracks and then suddenly there's this huge mixing desk and yeah um microphones that i'd never seen before yeah you probably would have been uh, singing into a CAD, the CAD mic. So oh, the okay. kin- is it kinetic audio? Yep. Um, yeah, they had the um, these totally awesome CAD mics there. Yep. Or it could have been a AKG, maybe a C three thousand. Um, but yeah, and actually being in your own little booth, sort of yeah, there, and yeah, with and the me, separation. Yeah, me being in the mix room, like running the and record and actually dropping in stuff oh, mm. the technical skills of <laughs> dropping in that's yep. where you hit record between say a breath or a phrase and you're trying to so say you were trying to sing a whole line but then we got one little bit that we needed to try and redo yep. the skill of dropping in and dropping out the record button so that you captured that one little phrase or line without recording over what the ones yep. that you wanted to keep that was a real skill set too yeah yeah and especially if you're limited by the number of tracks and you yeah. had to get it right, you didn't yeah. have um, the option of multi-tracking and then putting a take together word by word, yeah. which has been done and is done often. Um, <laughs> but I, I do remember that you were very patient because yeah. um, as pr- probably still the same now, um, I was more passion than technique. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess some... Um, all of that experience uh, since we first met, mm. is there anything that sort of sticks with you um, that's helped you most on your journey? Um, I think, again, the experience of, say, doing live performance, preparing for a live performance and then preparing for studio performance um, are two... Um, they're similar, but they are... Um, the, the level of expectation for the studio means I, I feel like I have to be um, much better prepared um, because you've got that permanency of what, what is happening. So, yeah. uh, you know, listening back, say, even for the first time to your own voice or listening back to a guitar performance against a click um, really mm. does bring to light... Um, uh, what's actually happening as opposed to how good you think you are. <laughs> <clears throat> and, um, yeah, so learning and understanding 
um, particularly with the studio experience, how important it is. Um, like particularly um, with my experience at TLC, a lot of the work that came through there, or almost all of the work, was um, based around being able to add MIDI or being able to drop in and drop out. Um, so it was all based around having a metronome or a click, as we like to call it. Yep. So it was all click-based stuff. So you needed to be able to play in time mm. and you needed to play two time for dropping in and dropping out and also just so that everything meshed together because when you've got multiple instruments, everyone does actually have to play in time for it to, um, yeah, get that, um, that glue that makes it work. So, yes, I'd say what stuck with me from those experiences was how important it is to learn to play to a click. Mm. Um, if you want session work and if you want to, um, I would also say in the long run, make your recordings um, hassle-free. Um, being able to actually use a click uh, allows for more freedom, I would say, too, when, you've, when you're in the recording process. Yeah, and so, I mean, that dedication to staying in time has probably led you to a more recent uh, instrumental obsession. Yeah. Yes. What can you tell us about that? Um, so yeah, my, my my latest instrumental obsession is is drumming. Um, when I say latest, I did sort of pick up drums a couple of decades ago um, and was playing was playing in bands and mm. things in my twenties. Yep. So there you go, just giving away how old I am. <laughs> um, and was loving that. Um, even you know, I I got to spend some time living and working as a musician over in the UK. I bought a kit while I was over there and was still playing there. And, I and didn't playing. know that. Yeah. Oh. Yep. So I um, was doing gigs there too, like doing the multi-instrumentalist thing. So when I was there playing, um, sometimes we would do gigs where I'd swap from playing acoustic guitar to snare and shaker, like, you yep. know, brushes and, and snare and, nice. and things like that. So, um, yeah. So that... That was sort of happening there too. Came back from the UK. I think I did. I did buy a kit, but then living circumstances meant there wasn't anywhere for me to actually sort of set it up. Uh, often play. happens. Yeah, because yeah. of the noise factor. Mm. Um, but yeah, moved into a, a new place now where having a drum kit set up is more than possible. Yep. Um, so yeah, got back into drumming sort of in the last five or six years. And have really worked, yeah, really hard on mm. lots of stuff around technique, um, playing, playing to a click. I mean, that that is a fairly innate part of my music from the beginning. You know, I learnt to play to a metronome for piano. So from right. from the age yep. of seven, I've been practicing scales, pieces, everything because I was doing, um, you know, like AMEB exams. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was playing to a metronome from the first musical experience I ever had. Yeah. So learning to play to a click on drums wasn't necessarily hard, but, um, as we were talking about, um, earlier, um, like over coffee, um, the coordination levels, um, Absolutely. yeah, on drums is like next level cause you've got your hands and, um, the independence of hands wasn't a big issue for me either because of piano playing. Yep. But the independence and control of your feet um, adds a whole new physicality and level of skill yeah. that you have to learn. And 
for me, I've found the last probably four years, the technical stuff's been a real grind and just trying to learn how to achieve um, a drum hit correctly technically mm. has felt like a lot of my practice time has just been grinding, grinding, yeah. grinding. Yep. Um, but it's actually starting to pay off now. So I feel like I'm creating a much more natural groove um, and particularly with the band I'm playing in at the moment with Anna Shanti, who's a blues, original blues act. Mm-hmm. Um, I've really had to learn how to do a blues shuffle. Right. Which is, is a whole other skill set of drumming yep. too. So learning to do that's been really... Playing uh, in time, but feeling like you're sitting back a bit. Yeah, and it's mm. sort of more of a triplet feel. Um, so learning to be able to have that feel and play to a click. And we play to a click live. Wow. Um, yeah, which everyone says, wow, you're playing a blues band and you're playing to a <laughs> click live. And that that has been an experience too, learning to play to a click live mm. and feeling the band either getting slower or getting faster and me trying to stay Pull to the click. Pull everyone back in. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, you know, initially that was really hard, <clears throat> excuse me, a really hard um, thing to deal with and on occasions I would abandon the click because I just couldn't, right. I couldn't get back in. Yep. But I've actually gotten used to how to manage if things do go out and we're completely out with the click, how to eventually get back into it. Hmm. So that in itself I think is quite... Quite yeah, a, a uh, yeah, quite a skill. Mm. Uh, and for all the gear nerds out there, what's your setup at the moment with your drums? Um, so I'm an acoustic drum player, mm-hmm. and I have two kits. Um, I'm I'm pretty much the uh, one rack tom, one floor tom. Yep. Um, and sometimes some of the gigs we play, it's only a floor tom just because of the size venue. Yep. Um, I have a 60s Yamaha kit. Beautiful. I think it's the model is a C220 from memory and um, it's totally awesome and it's going to make an appearance on the next Bad Loves album. Just Fantastic. Say. Not with me playing on it though but oh. still the kit is going to sound awesome. <laughs> um, and uh, my other kit is a Rogers, an 80s wow. Rogers kit and Fantastic. that one's the sort of bigger sized rock um, so actually mm-hmm. I should talk about the sizes so the Yamaha is a 20 inch kick uh, I think it's a 13 inch rack tom and a 16 floor mm-hmm. and the Rogers is actually got three toms it's a 22 inch kick a uh, 12 14 and 18 oh my goodness yeah so the 18 inch floor tom is just enormous and it yep. sounds rocking <laughs> um, so that's yeah that's really fun to play as well. Um, I generally, for gigs, I take the Yamaha because mm-hmm. it's lighter and yeah. I have puny girl arms. <laughs> um, so lifting it in and out of venues, um, I needed something that was lighter. Mm. And on that note too, gear-wise, I've invested in um, a more modern set of um, uh, stands. Um, so I use the Yamaha uh, Crosstown, I think they're called. Okay. Um, because it's really they're really really light. So, uh, okay. um, yeah, my traps bag um, weighs thirteen kilos or ten kilos, right. as opposed to like you know getting yep. double braced everything and a twenty kilo um, 
Yeah. yeah and a road bag. case with wheels. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it's just like, even if it's got wheels, some of the venues we play, like we're playing a venue next week called Beneath Driver Lane in the city, yep. and it's down a set of stairs. So I've got to be able to carry the stuff downstairs yep. um, and all of that. So, yeah. Oh, surely you can get your road crew to do that. <laughs> no, sadly, we've got no road crew. And uh, the other important thing which I should talk about is my symbols, because hmm. uh, I have an endorsement with an Australian ah, symbol okay. company. Um, so red symbols, mm-hmm. um, they're a Turkish-made symbol. Um, uh, they're brought into the country through, um, yeah, this company, Red. Mm-hmm. Um, Dylan Redman, who yep. runs the company, um, Another name from long ago. Yes, yep. yeah, and um, he's he's found a really great um, Turkish um, symbol manufacturer. Um, and the other great thing about what Red Symbols offers is they offer an opportunity for people like me to um, get a symbol made, um, like just a completely unique symbol. So if wow. I went to yep. Dylan and said I want it to have, you know, a raw bell. Um, a lathe to top and a roar underneath or something like that, um, mm. they would they would be able to do that. Whereas if I went to Zildjian, they'd go, well, who are you and why <laughs> on right. earth should we listen to you? Yeah. Um, so it's really, it's, it's really nice to have access to a company that are willing to do that um, for working drummers mm. who aren't in, you know, the top 1% echelon of the field but might actually benefit from uh, a unique symbol so yeah mm. shout out to them that's yeah and that's interesting because um I, I have sort of been getting back into the drumming as well and i guess the producer side of me was uh that was instrumental in trying to choose all the pieces of equipment because mm. i knew the sound i wanted to be getting i knew what i didn't want to be doing in post um i knew what i wanted in the recording um and I'd gone back to listening to some of the early Simple Minds recordings and I was listening to it to Mal Gaynor's hi-hat and I'm thinking, that's so clear, so... Mm-hmm. And there's like almost no bell resonance. Like how does he how does he set it up or how does he dull it so that there's none of that um, resonance? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went investigating on YouTube, as you do, um, and sure enough, he'd had his own hi-hats made Right. The top hi hat doesn't have a bell. Ah, it's just go. flat. Yeah. So that's yeah. Uh, once again, if you're looking for custom, uh, custom hardware, yeah, it might be a good way to go. Yeah. Um, so Carolyn, have you got anything you'd like to plug your own music, upcoming gigs, yeah. um, anything at all? Uh, so um, my latest album, which is um been around for a wee while you can listen to it on spotify if you look up carolyn oates um you've got to spell that correctly so that's mm-hmm. the other thing i'm sure there'll be some show notes on how to spell my name yes. correctly <laughs> um so you can go and listen to um my most recent album on spotify i have a website carolynoates.com where you can find out more there um i'm hoping to release a new single this year excellent and um that'll probably be a you know ongoing thing of just releasing singles um over yeah short periods of time and then separate to that the blues act that i'm playing in yep so we're playing at a really awesome venue 
um, blues venue in the city on Friday, the 25th of May. No, it's at the 26th, I think, um, called Beneath Driver Lane. And then we're on the blues train in, in Queenscliff. Fantastic. Which is a great core workout because you're on a moving stage constantly. <laughs> it's the weirdest gig as far as that kind of stuff goes. Um, we're up in Queensland in September. I was just going to say, the, we've just yeah. moved into a, a new kind of um, health podcast. Yeah. So if you want to strengthen up your core, yeah. just try drumming on the blues train. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and for any guitarists, it's all about leg strength. Um, so, you know, <laughs> you've really got to get that full rock stance in order to cater for all of the um, uneven train tracks. So what you're saying is for a full workout, mm. start off playing guitar for half yep. the trip yep. and then drums for the, yeah, the rest yeah. of the trip. Excellent. Yeah, pretty Great. much. Um, yeah. yeah, you'll get a full body workout strengthening right. kind of thing that way. We'll release a video shortly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and then uh, yeah, September up at uh, in Queensland for Mitchell's Creek Blues Festival. Yep. Uh, in July we're playing a Chuka Blues Festival. Awesome. Uh, for memory, I think that's that's all I can think of for now. But yeah, I you know I post on social media and stuff when I've got gigs coming up. Um, actually, there's a new literally just been put up on YouTube um, in the last couple of weeks. Anna's put up a a live video and recording of us playing um, from Blues on Broad Beach last nice. year. Yep. So there's two tracks up. Um, one is the full trio. And then the second one is uh, Anna playing her little um, diddly bow, which is a single stringed guitar. Okay. And me on drums. So, yeah, it's kind wow. of a bit um, white stripesy kind of uh. vibe. But, yeah, single stringed guitar. It's amazing what you can get out of a single string. Terrific. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming in today, Carolyn. Um, Thank you. And fantastic to see you and catch up. Um, we've tried to. Uh, keep up over the years and sharing gigs and information um but i'm still astounded by your level of musicianship and i always feel like an amateur back in high school when i see you play um, uh, so we'll sign off as always uh, there is magic in the mystery of not quite knowing what you are doing thanks everyone cue playback